Welcome to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. Mosaic Church seeks to engage the modern age with the historic Christian faith. If you don't have a home church, please don't use this podcast as a substitute for being a member of a local community of faith. Whether you call Mosaic your home or not, we hope that you find this sermon convicting and encouraging in your walk with Jesus. Here's our lead pastor, Pastor Greg Brown, with this week's sermon. This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40, if you'd like to start flipping and tapping there. Um, Kids, if you have your Bibles with you, feel free to ask your parents how to uh, maybe get to that place in your your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can read along up here if you're able to read. Uh, it's It's a good thing to read God's Word. Before we begin reading in this story this morning, again, Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40, before we start, you should note that Paul and Silas were in Philippi. This is a major Greek city on the Aegean Sea. Generally speaking, this is an area where people were pagans. They were believers in, in little g gods, lots of them, right? They didn't believe in God, big g God. They worshipped these little g gods. They worshipped the, the Roman emperor, perhaps, or the Egyptian gods, uh, or the Roman pantheon. They might have worshipped all these different types of gods, but they did not know the true God. They didn't know Yahweh. These were the people that Paul was actually called to preach to. Many of the apostles had been called to preach to the the Jews and to proclaim the gospel unto them, but Paul had been particularly called to the the Gentiles, and so he was out here in uh, Philippi preaching the good news, and he wasn't about to have an easy time doing it. Some people here, like a woman named Lydia, believed in God, and they actually received the gospel joyfully when they heard it. But for most people, God was going to have to do something a little more drastic in their hearts and minds in order for them to believe in Jesus Christ. Fortunately, in this story, that was just what was about to happen. Again, Acts chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 16. It says this, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim the way of your salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came of that very hour. Have you ever been just minding your own business when someone just came out of the woodwork to ruin your day? Come on, somebody's been there. You know how that feels, right? Like somebody just comes out and says, you know what, I'm going to make this day terrible for you. That was this woman for, for Paul and Silas. You see, they had just had some great success. They had found Lydia, and she was a believer in God, and they preached the gospel to her, and she received it with gladness. And they were going to go to to prayer consistently with her, and and that was going to be a very good thing. And they were like, man, gospel fruit. How wonderful is that? And then all of a sudden, this slave girl starts coming out and starts crying out in a loud voice, saying all sorts of terrible things about them. Oh, wait. Wait, that's, that's not what happened, is it? It's not what happened. Isn't that interesting? See, the girl wasn't actually lying about them, was she? This demon was, in a sense, prophesying truth through her. 
She starts spouting off the truth, and boldly too. It wasn't like the demon in her was cowering and couldn't do anything else but proclaim the truth. No, this girl was loudly crying out and telling everyone within earshot that Paul and Silas were servants of God and were proclaiming the way to salvation. Seems like a strange thing for a demon to do, doesn't it? But sometimes Satan speaks the truth in order to lead people to believe his lies. I believe this is actually why Paul ultimately cast the demon out. You see, I think that Paul came to realize that this girl crying out about what they were doing would make her seem like part of their group. And through that association, Satan could actually seize the opportunity to lead the people of Philippi astray. In fact, the reputation of the gospel is kind of a core theme for our story today. Paul wasn't worried about how he might look in front of these people. He was worried that the name of Jesus would be associated with demons, fortune-telling, and paganism. Of course, this, if this girl had, had come to faith in Christ, then her background would have been a testimony to God's grace, right? But as it was, this demon-possessed girl was signaling to everyone around that she was a Christian when she certainly was not. The reputation of the gospel in the eyes of the Philippians was at stake for Paul. Paul knew that Jesus had no fellowship with demons, but the people of Philippi wouldn't have known any better. They might have believed that Christianity was cap- compatible with, uh, with these other religions that they believed. Or maybe they would think that Jesus was just another little G God that they could add on to their existing pantheon, or any number of other heresies for that matter. So rather than allowing the name of Jesus to be associated with demons, Paul cast the demon out. Paul was unwilling to allow this fortune teller to continue to bear the name of God in vain. Does that sound familiar? Exodus 20, verse 7, one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That word take, you can leave that on the screen for a second. That word take more precisely means bear, take up, or carry. It's not about using bad words with God's name in it. It's about, it is that, by the way, but it's more than that. It's bearing his name in vain. It's having an association with his name and then making it seem as though it's trivial. This girl, or more precisely the demon in her, was Attempting to deceive the people at Philippi into thinking that Jesus was like all the other little G-gods they worshipped, and Paul was having none of that. In fact, the same reason that Paul ultimately cast this demon out is the same reason that we actually practice church discipline. If someone is living as though the name of Christ is something that can be associated with rampant, unrepentant sin, and they refuse to repent, it's our responsibility as a church to remove them from membership and bar them from the table. Doing otherwise is perpetuating a lie. It's a a visual association that this person is a Christian and is bearing the fruit of a Christian, and that fruit is sin. That's the lie. It says to the world, not only to us, but to the world, that this person is a Christian and Jesus is more than happy with all of their rampant sin. 
Paul knew the girl looked like a member of this fledgling church in Philippi, and he refused to allow the name of Christ to be associated with demons. And so he cast the demon out. Now, as to what happened after that, I I really don't know. It doesn't say here in the passage. I like to think that she joined the church after that, that maybe she had saving faith at that point, that the demon was out and she finally saw the truth. But at the very least, I imagine this was actually a pretty big relief to the girl. I can't imagine that being demon-possessed is much of a pleasure. It's not a good thing. And so, regardless of how maybe she ended up, which we don't know, we do know what happened after that. You see, this girl was a slave, and her masters were bound to make a lot of money off of her talents. If she was able to predict the future or tell people things that no one else would know, then they were going to make a good bit of money. Because look, I mean... All of us here today can admit that it would be really nice if I could know what the future held, right? I think many Christians desire this. That's why we see a lot of people running off into different places trying to figure out what does God want for my life, and they they seek out sort of oracles that are supposedly Christian. But all of us have that desire. We want to kind of know what's coming up. Maybe you want... God to tell you what job you should choose. And you're like, Lord, just, just, just tell me. Give me an audible voice. Maybe you run off into different places. Maybe you run off into error and you find yourself going to, to fortune tellers, tarot card readers, whatever it is. Everybody has that desire of, of knowing what's going on. And so these men were going to, to exploit that. Now, admittedly, none of that is a good thing. Asking God to reveal to you what you should do is a good thing. But going, hey, I'm not going to make any decision until I hear an audible voice, maybe not so much. He's given you a lot in his word. Maybe you can apply that. Anyway, that's just an aside. She was a slave, and they were going to make a lot of money off of of people's desires to know what happens in the future. And now Paul had taken away their ability to make money from her. Because this demon was was what was giving her this ability. And so Paul had really crushed their livelihood. They weren't too happy about that. Acts 16, verses 19 through 24. But when our owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And they had inflicted many, or when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Some of you you may know this about me. I, I used to be a bit of a gamer. I enjoyed computer games when I was young. Uh, I, I still enjoy games, uh, at least theoretically. I, I haven't had a whole lot of time to indulge in the hobby uh, for the last several years, but at least in theory, I, I, I still enjoy gaming from time to time. Uh, and uh, actually, recently, I ended up picking up a Nintendo Switch. Anybody have a Nintendo Switch in their house? Yeah. Fun stuff, right? Uh, I, you know, it, there's all sorts of crazy stuff on there, and it's, uh, it's all sorts of fun. One of, the, one of my favorite games on there uh, recently has been... Uh, Super Mario Odyssey. You played that yet? Anybody? A few of you? Yeah. 
Jet, I know. Uh, it's terrific, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's a great game. It's pretty crazy, right? Like, it's hilarious to start with. I mean, I don't know who came up with the idea for a sentient hat that you can throw around to take control of other characters, but I imagine they share a lot in common with the guy who thought that, you know, eating a leaf would give you a raccoon tail and allow you to fly. Remember that game? Yeah. Those are weird words to say in a sermon. <laughs> but anyway, it's well made and it's super fun. Uh, it also bears something very much in common with every other Mario game that I've played. And admittedly, I've only played some of the older ones. But as soon as you think that you're going to win, something else happens. And you realize that you have another challenge in front of you. Your princess is in another castle, right? Like, and I imagine that Paul and Silas sort of felt that way about this situation as... Paul cast out the demon, and they were like, man, we've had a hard time with this woman who's disrupting what we're doing and trying to associate demons with Jesus, but things had just gone from questionable to decidedly bad. True challenge was before them. See, Satan might have been at work in the girl, trying to twist people's perception of the gospel, but he was also at work in her master's. So the girl's masters went to the local magistrates and reported Paul and Silas that they were breaking the law. And I, I, I was interested in this because I thought for sure that they were just, they were trying to lie about it, right? They were bringing up falsehood. In fact, um, interestingly, Paul and Silas actually were breaking the law. Um, obviously, the, the men who had reported them were hypocrites, having watched them preach for days without reporting them, but the, the charge was actually real. You see, the people of Philippi were Roman citizens, and uh, they might have worshipped a large number of gods, but only those recognized by the state were technically legal. Sounds a lot like China today, doesn't it? Anything that's only state religions, right? Paul and Silas preaching the gospel was technically illegal. But so was how they were treated by the magistrates. See, these two missionaries were stripped naked and beaten with rods. And then the magistrates threw them in prison with their feet restrained so they couldn't walk around. And I, I just want to be clear, the beating that they received wasn't a small matter. I, I looked this up uh, as I was trying to figure out like, what kind of pictures I could understand this by, right? Like try to maybe paint a little bit of a picture of, of how they might have been treated. And turns out there's a, a, something called a, a Roman fasces, which is a bundle of rods with an ax in the middle. And uh, these things would be given to the magistrates of Roman colonies, Roman areas, and it was a symbol of power. But it wasn't just some symbol. It was actually used for corporal punishment. See, the rods were there so that they could inflict non-deadly, most of the time, non-deadly, but beat people with an inch of their life kind of punishment. And then the axe was there for execution. They were given power in these things. And so these, these two men, just trying to preach the gospel, living peaceably otherwise, were taken by the magistrates and they were stripped naked. And they took rods, which I, you're thinking, you know, Talking dowel rod size kind of things, not like a little twig. And they were beaten mercilessly. And it says that they had inflicted many blows. 
And then later, we actually see that they have wounds from these sticks that hit them because they would break as they hit people with them. They were treated shamefully, and Paul actually mentions this in one of his, his letters. It wasn't a small matter. Paul and Silas were having a very bad day. A very bad day. See, God's calling on your life doesn't come with a promise of ease or safety, does it? Paul and Silas were walking in faithfulness, and then this happens. If their faith were based on their circumstances, I think they might have renounced Jesus. But that isn't what happened. When I think about this situation, I, I wonder how they maintained their faith, though. Like, what's the practical way that you can have the kind of faith that allows you to suffer like that? Because sometimes, I'll be honest, my, my own faith is, is fragile. It can be like a, a piece of pottery, hard but brittle. So sometimes, when I, especially when I think about this situation, I, I, I think, what if I was put in the same place? Or I think about those dark moments that I've had in my life. And then I realize that like one moment, sometimes I'm so sure about everything. I'm so perfectly sure that, man, everything is going to go well and that God's going to, to save me from all the, all the stuff. And I, I realize this is wrong, but sometimes I think that, or at least I act like it. And then when things go wrong, sometimes I start to question whether God even hears my prayers, let alone answers them. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to that place where you're like, I don't know if God actually hears me right now? I'm suffering. Does he know? I hope I'm not alone here. But even in my darkest moments, when I started to see light through the cracks in my imperfect faith, God has prevented my faith from shattering. And I know that it has been him who prevented it, not me. Saving faith is a gift from God so that no one may boast. That's Ephesians 2. And that has never made more clear to me than in those moments when my supposedly airtight faith starts to crack. And in those moments, I see that my salvation depends solely upon God and him alone. And I'm thankful for it. In fact, in those moments where I can see those cracks begin to form, after that I find that God has actually strengthened my faith by it, that he's shown me how he has hold me, held me together during those moments. If you ask me how I know that God causes, and I mean sovereignly causes his people to persevere, then I'd point you to John 6.39, that Jesus will lose nothing of all the Father has given him. And then I would take you to the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8.30, where it says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then I might come to places like this story, and I might show you how supernaturally these men persevered in the most dire of circumstances. And then I would tell you that I know that God preserves his people because he has caused me to persevere. If I had been left to myself in those dark moments, I would not be here to preach this sermon today. But that's precisely the nature of saving faith. It's a faith that perseveres despite circumstances, 
if everything else you expected about life is falling short and you're in a dark moment today, simply trust that God will hold fast to you. God will hold fast to you. And when you make it through the other side of that dark moment, you'll be able to look back and you'll be able to see how he saved you. Only further strengthening that faith for the next set of difficult circumstances. Paul and Silas were in a dark moment that day in Philippi. Dark moment. Beaten within an inch of their lives. Clapped in stocks and not able to move, not able to to resituate themselves so that the pain could be relieved in a dark prison, a dark day. But God gave them the faith that overcame their circumstances. Acts 16, 25 through 26 says this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. At least two miraculous things are described in these two verses. The second is pretty obvious, I think. God created an earthquake that moved the very foundation of the prison such that all of the doors were opened and all of the chains fell off. Pretty big miracle, right? Pretty big deal. But the first miracle in this passage is maybe more miraculous. Paul and Silas were singing. They were singing after having been beaten within an inch of their lives and cast into a dirty prison cell with wooden blocks fastened about their feet so they couldn't move. They were singing. Look, after what they had just experienced, talking was probably hard enough. And I can even understand praying prayers of desperation for deliverance from God in that moment. Because, look, even atheists in moments of crisis often cry out to a God in whom they do not believe. Prayer comes naturally to people, to human beings. But singing? Singing. In that situation, look, there are two options here. Either those guys had taken one too many blows to the head, or God was doing something supernatural in them. See, the word hymn in this passage is a song of praise. They weren't singing songs of lament about their beaten, broken bodies. They weren't singing songs of deliverance. They weren't singing songs about anything except the praise of what God had done and who he was. Praise to the God that had sent them to preach the gospel in Philippi in the first place. They were singing praise to the God who had allowed them to be beaten within inches of their lives. And they praised the God who was nonetheless worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. They praised the God who saved their souls. The people of God always have a reason to praise. No matter the circumstances, no matter your circumstances, there is reason to sing praise. We praise because God is worthy, and we praise because He does save our souls. 
And even if you can't praise God for your circumstances, you can praise God through your circumstances. Sing about his character. Sing about his might, his saving work. Sing about salvation and the glory to come. Sing in thanksgiving that though your body or even your mind are wasting away right now, your soul is alive in Christ. And you will be resurrected bodily on that last day to spend eternity with God. There is reason to sing. As Paul and Silas did just that, the foundations of the prison began to shake. I can't imagine this. Sitting there, just singing and praying to God, and, and then all of a sudden the ground begins to shake. And this wasn't a little, this was not a little earthquake. It's a big earthquake. It shakes the very foundation of the prison. It's not just a, a little tremor where it knocks the, the stuff off the walls. No, this prison began to shake, and the doors, I don't know whether they just unlocked or if they just fell off their hinges, I don't know. But the doors all opened. Not only that, all the chains fell off. God was doing something supernatural there. And you'd think, you don't know the story, you'd think that that was the end of the story. They just walked right out, right? That would be the rational thing to do from a human perspective, wouldn't it? That's not quite what happened. Acts 16, 27 through 34 says, When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all those who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, him and all his family. And then when he brought them up into his house and set food before him, or before them, sorry, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. As if singing, after all of this, wasn't quite supernatural enough from a faith perspective, as if an earthquake that freed every prisoner there wasn't awesome enough, Paul and Silas stayed right there in their cell. But it wasn't just Paul and Silas, was it? All of the prisoners stayed. Can you imagine that conversation? God just set you free. All the chains are off. All the doors are open. And like, I can't imagine this. Paul's sitting there with Silas, and they're like, we need to stick around. And they're trying to convince these guys, hey, guys, look, I know. It looks like the doors are open. They are. But, hey, you just need to just sit back down back in yourselves. We're going to go check on this guy. Make sure he's okay. I, can't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know if God supernaturally changed these people's minds and they all just stayed where they were. I don't know if, if Paul and Silas had to like bribe them. I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't think that that's what happened. But I don't know. I don't know how that conversation went. 
have no idea how that went down, but I know that another miracle happened that night. Not a single prisoner chose to escape, though they had every opportunity. But the jailer didn't know that, obviously, at the time. In Roman culture at the time, uh, this sort of failure would have led to severe punishment, possibly death. In addition, in that pagan culture, suicide was often seen as the honorable end for someone who had failed like this jailer had, or at least thought he had. But Paul and Silas stayed put. And in doing so, they saved that man's life and his immortal soul. That took faith, didn't it? A faith that looked upon Jesus not only as their personal Savior, but as the perfect example of Christian morality. Paul and Silas obeyed Christ. They obeyed his example with joy. They loved their neighbor, the jailer, as themselves. They put the jailer's life even before their own because sticking around was almost certainly a death sentence. But they knew that their souls were safe in Christ and his, this jailer's life and his eternal soul were in danger. Paul and Silas didn't know if they would be released or executed or what, but they followed the example of Christ by laying down their lives for their oppressor. This sort of selflessness is hard to find, but I believe that it is something to be pursued. And this, I would argue, is only possible through rest in Christ. Resting in Christ means I, I find myself eternally secure in him, so much so that I could spend my life on something that this world would deem trivial. Because Paul and Silas knew that Jesus had died for their sins, because they understood that they had eternal life in him, because they were resting in the finished work of Christ, they could then follow his example by being selfless toward the jailer. Christians, pursue the kind of faith that follows Jesus like that. Seek to apply your faith, not only privately, but publicly. Let it change the character of your speech and actions. Seek to look more and more like Jesus every single day. It's a hard thing to say because none of us quite measure up, do we? But it's a good thing to pursue, to look like Jesus. This idea of looking like Jesus is not only for your own good, but for the good of others. People might actually be saved because they see Jesus in you. I think the jailer saw Jesus through Paul and Silas that day because they decided to be selfless. I mean, more than the, the praying and the singing, more than the earthquake, more than perhaps even their preaching if he had heard it earlier that day, more than any of those things, that act of selflessness, staying after the doors had swung open, was the means by which God saved that man's life and his soul. And he finally broke. He asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? I don't think that he was asking how he could be saved from the Roman authorities because his prison was broken. He was saying, how must I be saved? How, what, what must I do to be saved eternally? And then the simple answer comes, 
Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. It's as simple as that. You ever considered how simple the gospel is? Simply believe. Trust in Jesus. The gospel is simple. It's also powerful. And the gospel changes everything. It changed Paul from Saul to Paul. It changed Silas. And through them, it changed that jailer and his whole family. How many eternal souls did they win that day? The man who had put them in stocks, who had watched over them in the jail now, welcomed him, them into his home. He washed their wounds. They, he, he fed them his own food. Something had drastically changed in this man. The gospel changed him. He saw what they were about. He understood Jesus and something changed. It's not that the man was perfect immediately. He wasn't perfectly delivered from all the, all the things he could possibly be delivered from in that day and age, and, or this one even. But he was changed. He became hospitable. He understood that at least he could entertain these men and, and make sure that they were well taken care of. Gospel changes it all. Perhaps you need to be reminded today that the gospel is simple. Maybe you've overcomplicated things a little bit. Trust in Jesus and be saved. It's really that simple. It's audacious, isn't it? No, it's not easy. It's simple. It's not easy. Yes, it means turning away from your sin. But it really is that simple. Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. That the youngest person in this room could grasp that. Repent and believe. Turn from your sin, trust in Jesus. Maybe today you need to be reminded that the gospel is sure. Hebrews 6.19 says that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, and that anchor is our hope in Jesus Look, no matter what comes, no matter what you've been through, no matter what you're going through right now, our souls are safe in Christ. Maybe you need to be reminded that the gospel calls you to obedience. God has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's 1 Peter 2.9. You are no longer a slave to sin Therefore, walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4. Gospel changes everything. It changed the jailer. It changed his family. It had already started to change, or it had already changed uh, Paul and Silas, and it was changing Philippi. In fact, a, a vibrant church was going to be started here. And I hope and I pray that the gospel is changing you in like ways. But something hadn't changed in our story Paul and Silas were still prisoners, weren't they? They might have been in better digs, but uh, they were still prisoners. Acts 16, 35 through 40 says, When it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. <laughs> Therefore, come out now and go in peace. <laughs> 
But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. As if the rest of the story wasn't incredible, like Paul actually refused to be released. Like, I'm just going to hang out in prison. It's fine. No. He's like, no, I don't want to be released on these terms. This is where it kind of comes full circle. As with every step along the way, the reputation of the gospel in the world was at stake. See, Paul and Silas weren't just Paul and Silas. They were representatives of Jesus before the world. And so they were careful not to allow the gospel's reputation to be tarnished. In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus tells his disciples to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves because he's sending them out among the wolves. I don't believe this is for their own sake, giving the, the context, but that he's saying the world is going to find every reason to hate and persecute the disciples of Jesus, and we shouldn't give them any more opportunity or reason than the gospel itself does. And this isn't for our own safety, I don't think, because Christians like Paul and Silas have been beaten, imprisoned, and even killed over the centuries simply because of the gospel. Being wise as serpents and innocent as doves isn't going to save us from the persecution of the world for the gospel, but practicing both wisdom and holiness will certainly show the world that Jesus is who he said he was. It's going to show the world Jesus more clearly than if we practice foolishness and sin. Paul and Silas could have bolted as soon as the magistrates told the jailer to let them go, but they knew that forcing them to issue a public apology would be better for the reputation of the gospel. They were innocent as doves, but wise as serpents. Paul knew his standing. He understood what was going on here, and he was able to say, no, for the sake of the gospel, you need to come here and tell everyone publicly, essentially, that we are innocent. In this last part of the story, Paul wisely used those rights as a Roman citizen to elicit an apology from the magistrates and therefore restored the reputation of the gospel in that area, even at his own peril, again risking his own life for the sake of the reputation of the gospel, for the sake of the name of Christ. It wasn't about Paul. It wasn't about Silas. It was about Christ. They didn't want Jesus maligned. They wanted to make sure that Everyone saw Jesus clearly. Paul and Silas didn't just want to see themselves saved. They wanted the world saved. They wanted those people in Philippi saved. They knew that their souls are secure. And so they were like, we're willing to give it all for the sake of those who don't yet know him. What an amazing example. Let's live like that. Not just for ourselves, because I think it's easy to live for ourselves and go, I have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, and I'm, I'm saved, so I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to go out there to all those people out there who are hurting and looking for why in the world 
life is the way it is, and looking for some sort of meaning or hurting even in, in physical, psychological, emotional ways. Uh, maybe I don't need to care about them. No, that's not how that works. If Jesus has truly changed you, then you will want, you should want other people to come to know him like you've known him. But that's risky, isn't it? It's risky. Risky to your, to your job. It's risky to your family even. It's risky to your relationships. You may find yourself limited economically because you practice what it is that you believe in your heart. The kind of wisdom that Paul and Silas had in this, in this passage comes only from a faith that truly and completely trusts in Jesus. It's real faith. It's faith that works its way into every area of our lives. And so I want you to make that your prayer today. Look, even if you're going through the worst situation you've ever been through in your entire life, I want you to make that your prayer today, that God would give you faith that allows you to go through the circumstances and not just survive the circumstance, but put others before yourself. That's, that's a big faith. It's a big faith, and it's a faith that only God can provide. Pray for a faith that transforms, a faith that's bold, a faith that works its way out into your life so strongly that everyone around you sees not you, but Jesus in you. Pray for faith that leads you to do family devotions and worship. Pray for faith that leads you to pray with your husband or wife. Pray for a faith that leads you to sacrifice time in front of a screen for time at the foot of the cross. Pray for the faith to turn away from getting more stuff and toward providing for the needs of others. Pray for a faith that drives you to know God through his word instead of searching for him in all the wrong places. Pray that God would give you the faith to find fulfillment in him. Pray for a faith that moves mountains, that transforms cities, states, countries, worlds. Pray for a faith that kills sin and reflects the glory of God out into the world. Pray for a faith that declares without reservation that good news that Paul gave to the jailer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And once you've prayed for faith, this is the hard part, live like God's going to give it to you. He gave every, every ounce of supernatural faith that Paul and Silas needed in this passage. Why do you think that he won't give it to you in the moment when you need it? Step out. Be bold. Trust him. That's all it is. It's trust. It's resting in Christ. Exercise that faith muscle. Step out. Trust him. Pray for that today. And then live like God's going to provide every single moment. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. 
For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at mosaicrva.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.